Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, the FT's Chief Regulation Correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent, and Charlene Goff, Retail Banking Correspondent. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing Citigroup following the sudden departure of Chief Executive Vikram Pandit last week. We'll also look at Lloyd's as it examines whether to ditch annual bonuses for senior staff. And we'll talk about interest-only mortgages ahead of new rules on loans to be announced by the Financial Services Authority in the UK. First, though, to Citigroup. Daniel, you've been watching events unfold there. It was pretty dramatic, wasn't it, when Vikram Pandit resigned as CEO last week? I don't think many people, including senior people within the bank, were braced for that. Yes, indeed. It happened all within less than 24 hours. On Monday, Citigroup came out with their quarterly results. They weren't really good results, but they were above expectations. Everything seemed to be going as normal. And as we learned afterwards, only you know a few hours later, really, Mike O'Neill, the chairman of Citigroup, Group met Vikram Pandit and basically told him to resign, although the official version is uh, somewhat different in that they're saying that <laughs> Vikram Pandit asked us to resign. By Tuesday, it was suddenly announced that Vikram Pandit, as well as the chief operating officer, John Havens, would resign. You know, it really came out of the blue. If the results weren't the trigger, what is your understanding as to what was really? I think it was a mixture of reasons. The main reason really is that he lost the confidence of shareholders and of the chairman, Mike O'Neill, as well, in the sense that there were just too many mishaps that happened in the past year or so. I mean, one of the main things was the fact that City didn't get the go-ahead for a higher payout to shareholders. Yeah, this was that was quite embarrassing. This was a stress-tested scenario whereby City wanted to pay out higher dividends and do share buybacks and so on, but they seemed to have pitched it too high and they got rejected by the regulators. Then the other thing that happened only a month ago, which sort of seemed to be the final straw in this, was Citigroup sold a stake in Smith Barney, the retail broker to Morgan Stanley and had to basically take an almost $5 billion hit on the value of the stake because they just got such a bad price from Morgan Stanley. Brooke, how do you see the story? Pandit it was seen by the regulators, actually, as having done a reasonably good job, having been dealt a terrible hand. Because he'd ba- been there basically four or five years, right through the crisis, really. Right. He came in when Chuck Prince, who was the member we have to start keep dancing guy, was yeah. forced out. And the regulators felt that you know there had been some missteps, but actually that Pandit was kind of riding the ship. And so they also, I think, are a bit shocked by the whole thing, which is not a good thing for City, given that it is still under very close supervision by the Fed. I think that's the interesting thing about it. I mean, actually, Vikram Pandit has done quite a good job in scaling down balance sheet of City. I mean, City was just a massive It bank was very that big was, and yeah, it had it was, a very yeah, toxic created, balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, toxic balance sheet created through a you know, string of acquisitions that were you know not very well integrated. Nobody within the firm really knew what the other side was doing, and it, right. was, it was basically a mess. So one of the things that 
changed, though, was yeah. that we had a new chairman as of, yeah. what, six or so months ago. Yeah. Uh, Mike O'Neill took over. It seems very much as if it's his will being imposed on the board. Yeah, I think it is. I think he has become a much more active chairman than his predecessor has been. He's been talking to investors a lot. He's been even involved in some of the regulatory issues. He'd spoken to the regulators after March when, when the regulators told uh, City they can't do this payout. He was a very hands-on chairman, getting very involved and wanting to change things at City. Well, he has changed things and yeah. he's brought in a new chief executive who was yes. previously the head of Europe. What's your impression of Mike Corbett and what he will do as the new CEO? Yeah. I think he might actually be the guy that City needs now in that he's very well respected internally. He's been there forever, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, like 29, 29 years. years so yeah. everybody really likes him. He's seen as very hands-on, very good at executing a strategy. He's not exactly a visionary. City had quite a lot of visions in the past, you yeah. know, taking over <laughs> lots of visions. companies and, and, you know, becoming the, the biggest bank in the world. And I think City at the moment doesn't need vision, but it, it needs execution and it needs somebody to actually get the operations working together better and, you know, scaling further back City Holdings, which is which are the le- legacy the, assets, the toxic stuff. The toxic right? stuff. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing City needs, but not a visionary strategy. We should move on to the second topic, which is Lloyd's and the news that the remuneration committee at, at Lloyd's is looking at a new, fairly innovative structure for bonuses going forward, in particular lengthening, basically, the, the term of bonuses. Charlene, what do you think of it? I think it's quite an easy hit for Lloyd's, given that of all the UK banks, it's Lloyd's that has the smallest investment banking division. So you don't have this sort of army of highly paid traders and investment bankers that are very reliant on these annual bonuses. And therefore controversial with shareholders and politicians, arguably. Exactly. Given so that Lloyd's is 40% owned by the state. So they can essentially push through quite a radical reform, which this would be, and not face the kind of antagonism that other banks like RBS or Barclays would undoubtedly face if they tried to do the same thing. So just to be clear, there's two elements. The most extreme of them would see annual bonuses done away with and the long-term incentive plan, which is the thing that currently runs for about three years, would be extended in time frame so that the vesting and then the receipt of the shares would take a total of 10 years. Exactly. And undoubtedly, that would be a popular move. I mean, there's been huge... Maybe not for the bankers. (laughs) Not for the bankers, but for the public generally, taxpayers still own 40% of Lloyd's. The government has made very clear that it is anti these big annual bonuses and obviously we saw the huge controversy that was created when Stephen Hester, the chief executive of RBS, was awarded about a million pounds at the start of this year. Now, Lloyd's avoided that kind of scenario this time around because its chief executive, Antonio Otarosario, had already waived his bonus because he had to take off a couple of months uh, this time last year for when he was suffering from exhaustion. So mm-hmm. he said at the time he would not be taking an annual bonus. But you know, as we come into the kind of bonus round again, you know, we come back after Christmas, inevitably there would be that sort of pressure brewing again, particularly on the two chief executives of the state banks. Now, it's my understanding that this wouldn't actually happen for 2013 anyway, but it's probably quite helpful for them if they're seen to be considering this. Brooke? The other thing that's sort of interesting is that, in fact, the annual bonus is practically disappearing anyway because of EU regulation, that any annual bonus they give that's good-sized is already down to only one quarter of it can be paid in cash right up front. Another quarter can be paid in upfront stock, and but the rest of it has to be deferred for basically three years anyway. So getting rid of the name, they are losing some cash, but in fact, it's in some ways a PR move for big bonuses. It's less it's, disruptive than you might think. It's the smaller bonuses, yeah. actually. It'll be, you know, vice president who's had a good year and was hoping to get £20,000 with which he was going to put a down payment on a car. He's not going to get that. Less important about the doing away with the annual bonus, but I guess an extension yeah. to 10 years is 
fairly extreme compared with three, right? The, the last one we've seen was Deutsche Bank, which came forward with a proposal for the top 150 bankers to defer the bonus for five, five years. Five years instead of three. So, and three yeah. years is common practice. So, yeah. And you'd, you'd, you'd find a few banks that have five years already. It is unusual. Three years is really common practice. And the other banks that always are cited in this regard are HSBC, which I think a year ago or so brought in a total career at the bank, I think. That was the time oh. frame for holding bonuses, right? Holding in at least a portion until yeah. retirement, but yeah. given and Goldman Sachs, and yeah, and given partners. the state though of the banking industry right now, I mean, there's an argument to say this would ultimately be beneficial for the chief executives because you know if their bonuses are cashed in at current share prices they're probably going to be a lot lower than well you would hope that they would be worth more in five years time. One interesting point is also that I mean this isn't a panacea to making a bank less risky or trigger cultural change because you have to remember that there were actually two big banks that had five-year deferrals uh, before the financial crisis and those two banks were Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns so that goes to say it doesn't they're also really the big banks that had a lot of equity component in their bonuses, which is what yeah. a lot of regulators have pushed banks to do more of, as Brooke was saying. On their own, remuneration structures are not the panacea. Our final topic for today is interest-only mortgages. In the UK, these are a massive thing that involve basically people borrowing money to buy a house, but not actually repaying the principal upfront or gradually over time, and only paying when the term of the mortgage finishes in 25 years, just paying the interest. In the meantime, this is obviously something that was very popular in the boom time. Charlene, as people used it as a way to afford very highly priced houses, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that was never the uh, the intention of these mortgages. It was a way to get a bit more flexibility so you could just pay the interest every month, but you were sort of expected to pay off chunks maybe every year when people got paid a bonus or something or have a sort of endowment policy in place that should deliver sufficient return to pay off the mortgage at the end of the term. But their use became a bit distorted in the big housing boom of the mid-2000s when really they were just used as a tool to minimise monthly repayments. So people, borrowers, sort of chasing ever-rising house prices could afford to borrow more. As you were highlighting in Monday's paper, there could be a brewing problem. Obviously, there would be a problem if interest rates rose sharply and the affordability of these mortgages uh, became a problem and, say, property prices started falling and whatever and people wouldn't be able to finance the payoff of the original sum that they borrowed. But there's also a mis-selling concern. There is Potentially. I mean, there's little evidence so far that these mortgages have been missold. Banks have been very clear that at the end of the term, borrowers will still owe the capital. And, you know, as one banker put it, the clue is in the name. But there's some changes coming from the Financial Services Authority that could make banks more responsible for verifying whether borrowers will be able to afford to repay their loan at the end of the term. And obviously, this is really freaking out banks and building societies who are concerned that if they have to check that the repayment vehicle is there and they say yes you know we think that in in 20 years you will have enough money to repay the loan and then when it comes to it and the borrower doesn't then that's a much easier claim for mis-selling than anything we've seen already so that that's so we'll just see fit. these mortgages stopped presumably we have been happened. seeing that already i mean mm. there's been a gradual withdrawal from lenders from the sector and that's accelerated in recent weeks we saw nationwide stop offering them altogether. other lenders have clamped down on the amount 
amounts people can take relative to the value of the house. So we've seen some restrictions come in sort of saying that borrowers can only take 50% of the value of the house if they want to do interest only, or they have to seek advice and they have to have proper repayment plans in place. So lenders are getting nervous for sure. You mentioned also that there is around the mis-selling allegations, there's some of these claims management companies which have kind of come to prominence over the uh, PPI mis-selling scandal of targeting a lot of people who they think have been mis-sold those and, and trying to represent them with the banks, that they be latching onto this topic as well. There's early signs that they are. We've seen some of the biggest claims management companies start sniffing around interest only, seeing if they can persuade people that, you know, they may have been mis-sold. We've also seen a few websites popping up, sort of missoldinterestonly.com and saying, you know, if you've got one of these mortgages, you may have a claim. Now, again, given what happened with PPI, that these kinds of companies companies were hugely responsible, according to the banks, for the for the enormous bill that they're now facing for PPI. It's now sort of up to £10 billion. And the banks have said for a long time that that's due to the aggressive tactics of these claims management companies, really just encouraging everyone who's ever had a policy to put forward a claim. If they do that with interest only, we're in serious trouble because the potential bill is far, far greater. Assuming but, that they had some kind of leverage to make it stick. Exactly. But as we said earlier, at the moment, there is very limited evidence of mis-selling and I think you know action is being taken by regulators and by the banks to try and avert another situation like that. One of the defenses for the banks of course is if they kept decent records of their sales if they didn't mis-sell and there's a sign that you know we handed you a piece of paper that said you do understand that you will still owe those mortgage which frankly any decent mortgage seller ought to have been doing they should be fine because as you say they are called interest only mortgages. The problem of course would be in the boom times people didn't keep very good records the US mortgage market that's been part of the problem with what's I mean many things were I mean, yeah. many of those mortgages were missold in the US but even ones that might not have been missold the banks couldn't even begin to prove that they sold them properly and there have been these multi-billion dollar settlements largely because the banks just didn't keep any records at all yeah, which right. is illegal by the way Charlene was mentioning that these products probably are going to disappear now how does that tally with the views of the FSA more broadly you had the interview with Andrew Bailey that kind of reconciling the issue of wanting to be tougher in terms of capital but also wanting to be pragmatic in terms of where we are in the current cycle and wanting to free up banks to be able to lend not only to SMEs, the politically popular sector, but also to mortgage borrowers, particularly first-time mortgage borrowers. How does that tally with the idea of interest only being clamped down on? I think in general, Andrew Bailey and the FSA's view is that they want lending, but they want good lending. And so they have tended to come down very hard on kind of lending practices that are not supportable by good risk modeling and good evidence. For example, you know, so-called liar loans where you don't have to demonstrate that you have any income. They're really not interested in encouraging that because those are silly. And so what they've essentially done is raised capital requirements informally for the banks for anything that's not well documented and that they don't have good risk models for. And that can be anything from a liar loan to a mortgage holder to a really large commercial real estate loan for which there are no good models. On the other hand, they have encouraged lending to sort of the middle of the road funding for lending kinds of people by reducing capital requirements. So it's it's a much more judgment-based system and a lot less tick box. As long as they get the judgments right, then we should all be fine. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Daniel and Charlene for their contributions and to thank you for listening. You can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Nalini Sivathasan. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.